Well, good morning. Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And we are one church that meets in more than one location. So every single weekend, we have family meeting at our Stone Canyon campus, those others who join us online. So if you would put your hands together, welcome those who might be listening in right now. Well, last weekend, if you were here, you know we launched a new teaching series which we're calling Green Country. And Green Country is the name or the nickname that was given to the region of Oklahoma which we live in. It was given in the 1960s by the Department of Recreation and Tourism. And we were given this nickname for a few different reasons. One, because of the green prairies and rolling green hills, also because of the lakes that are in this area, but also because they thought the term was inviting. They hoped that it would motivate people to come and visit this region of the state, and maybe even move here. In my family, we've lived in green country. We've lived in Oklahoma for just under two years, and we absolutely love it. We love the culture here. We love the people here. We love this church. It's great. But whether you've lived here for a short period of time like my family, if you're a native Okie, one thing that you're probably aware of is that the state of Oklahoma is known for its music. I mean, we've had a lot of great singers that have come out of our state, especially country singers, and I want to share a few of them with you. I know you guys recognize these names. The first singer is Reba McIntyre. She's from McAllister, Oklahoma. Any Reba fans in the room today? Let me hear you. All right. Reba, believe it or not, was the first concert that I ever attended. I was a little boy. My parents took me. I'll never forget it. She was awesome. I was just wowed by her. How about uh, this singer right here? I'm sure you all know Garth, right? Any Garth Brooks fans? Yeah, that's what I thought. Now, Garth is from the Tulsa area, so has anybody personally met Garth? Let me see your hands. Yeah, a ton of you. I've heard stories of people running into him at Walmart and Target, different places, so that's really cool. I'd like to meet him someday. If you ever run into him, you know him. Hey, introduce me. That'd be great. Okay, how about this lady right here? You guys know her, I'm sure. Carrie Underwood. Carrie Underwood, the American Idol winner. I was in college when she was on American Idol. I know that tells you my age. But I was in college when she was on American Idol. I'm, I remember watching the first show that she was on when she was first auditioning. And I was watching it with my roommate in college. And I said, she's going to win it all. She's going to win the entire competition. And he looked at me and he said, a country singer will never win American Idol. Well, he was wrong and he's a Yankee, so he doesn't know music. But anyway, I was right. And she went on and she won. I've been a Carrie Underwood fan ever since. How about this guy right here? We all know him, Blake, right? I mean, he's a star of The Voice as well as a great country music singer, but I've got one more Okie that I want to share with you who's going to be the next country megastar, our very own Gracie Shriver. I know here at First Church and in Owasso, we're all on Team Gracie, so make sure you're cheering her on this week as she performs in the playoffs, but also vote for her as well. We're excited to cheer on Gracie. But Oklahoma is definitely known for its great singers. But not only that, the state of Oklahoma has also inspired a lot of songs as well. And so last weekend, I invited uh, some people who were not native Okies to come up on stage and help me pronounce some town names. Well, this weekend, I'm going to invite someone who is native to this state, and I'm going to ask him, Corey, if you're out there, you want to come on up, I'm going to ask him to help me finish some songs that were inspired by Oklahoma, inspired by the state of Oklahoma. So I believe our office contacted him this week, but didn't tell you what you're going to be up here for, right? So uh, we're going to put you on the spot, and we're going to, basically what we're going to do is going to put a song up on the screen, play it for you. We're going to stop the song, there'll be some blanks here, and we just want you to finish the next line. And if you can't do it, Tim's up here to help you out, okay? So, and for being a good sport, you will get a prize, okay? I promise that. So, here we go. The first song, it's our state song here at Oklahoma. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain. 
Help him out. Go ahead. That's good. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Tim, go and help him out. There you go. Awesome. Give him a round of applause. Okay. Okay. Here's this next one. We live in the Tulsa area. How about living on Tulsa time? Living on Tulsa time. Living on Tulsa time. Will you know I've been through it? Gonna set my watch back to it. Living on Tulsa time. All right. You got that one. Sweet. If you notice, I'm not singing, so I'm letting you do it. Yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're doing great. Okay, one more. Well, I never been to heaven, but I've been to Oklahoma. Well, they tell me I was born there, but I really don't remember. Yeah. All right. Want to finish it out? No, that's good. All right. I'll tell you what. For being such a good sport, we're giving you your very own Oklahoma coffee tumbler. So there you go. You're going to take it with you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. Well, you guys know music songs, they have the ability to motivate and inspire people. And that's true not just when it comes to songs about Oklahoma. It's also true about some songs that were written thousands of years ago, which we have in our Bible. We talked last week how right in the middle of our English Bible is a book that we call Psalms. And this is a collection of songs because the word psalm just means a song. If we want to put that up on the screen, there we go. And it's just a collection of songs that were written thousands of years ago that men who were inspired by God wrote in order to motivate God's people to live for Him. Because sometimes in life we need direction. Sometimes we need to be refocused. And that's what these psalms helped the people of God do years ago, and it's helped God's people do that for thousands of years. In ancient Israel, they would sing these songs in their homes. They would sing them in the streets during festivals and feasts. They would also sing them during times of corporate worship, because sometimes we do need some redirection, and we need to make sure that we're following God as we need to. And of the 150 psalms that we have in our collection, at least 72 of them are credited to this guy named David, King David of David and Goliath fame. And David was a shepherd before he became king. And in his most famous psalm, he wrote this psalm as from the perspective of a sheep being led by his shepherd. And he uses this as an illustration for how God leads us. We call it today the 23rd psalm, or some people call it the shepherd's psalm. And David writes about how a good shepherd leads a sheep into green pastures because in the world that David lived in when he raised sheep he was raising sheep in a desert wilderness so a good shepherd in this day and age had to know where where an oasis was where there was an area of green plants and water so that sheep could be nourished and could be well fed you had to know where the green pastures were and when you saw green you knew that was a sign of life and so what David here is trying to say is the Lord is our shepherd in the sense that he leads us to life. He wants to nourish us. He wants to keep us safe. He wants to make sure that we live healthy lives. And that's why you, when you look at the very first verse of Psalm 23, verse 1, we see that David makes this comparison. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. The whole point that David here is trying to make is that we live in a desert wilderness of sin in this world and God wants to lead us from death to life and here's the thing 
This isn't something that God just wants to do in the future. Sometimes when we look at Psalm 23, we look at it during, you know, like funeral times or times of grief, and it's fine to do that, but it's not just a future thing as if these green pastors will come one day when we get to heaven. I want you to notice David's language here. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's present tense, current tense, meaning right now, at this point in my life, the Lord is leading me. The Lord is my shepherd. And that's why we're saying in this series that Psalm 23 is a practical guide for how to live a full life, a spiritually healthy life in the here and now. And so I want to look at this psalm again this week. We started last week and we looked at the opening lines. And we're going to look at the next section of this psalm together so if you would look with me at psalm 23 david writes the lord is my shepherd i shall not be in want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leans me beside quiet waters that's where we studied last week but look at this next line he restores my soul he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and i will dwell in the house of the lord forever so lastly we talked about how when god leads us into this God leads us down this path of life. He takes us in the green pastures. And in these green pastures, he wants us to rest. Because he knows in order for us to survive, we have to be rejuvenated. We have to be re-energized and recharged on a regular basis. So we need a regular routine of rest. And that's the quiet waters that David talks about. But then look at what David says next. He says, in this new life that God wants to give us, he restores his soul, my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, you might be wondering, if David is writing this psalm from the perspective of a sheep being led by a shepherd, what does this have to do with the shepherd and sheep analogy, the shepherd and sheep illustration? Because this phrase here, he restores my soul, I mean, isn't that kind of like churchy language? Isn't that like religious language? How would that fit with the whole shepherd and sheep illustration? Well, the key here is the word restores because that original Hebrew word restores literally means to bring back and it was the exact same word that was used when a sheep would wander away from the flock and the shepherd would go after that sheep and bring the sheep back because see David before he was king remember he was a shepherd and he knew something about sheep he knew that sheep had the tendency to wander Sheep had the tendency to wander away from their safety and security, to wander away from the shepherd who wanted to protect them and provide for them. And here's the thing. David didn't just know a whole lot about sheep. He also knew a whole lot about people. And he knew that we as people often have a tendency to wander away. The Bible even tells us this. Isaiah 53, look at what it says. Isaiah 53 verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. See, I find it interesting that one of the Hebrew words in the Old Testament used for sin is the word shagog. If you would, everybody on the count of three, say that word with me, shagog. One, two, three, shagog. And that word in Hebrew literally means to go astray, to wander away. See, that's what sin is. 
Sin is wandering away from God's plan for our lives. Sin is walking away from God's purpose for our lives. Sin is leaving God's plan, God's safety, God's security behind. But here's the thing. David knew that when a sheep wandered away from the shepherd, a sheep did not have the skills or the ability to get back home on its own. In order for the sheep to get back to safety, the shepherd would have to come find it. And the shepherd would have to be the one to bring it back because a sheep could not make it back to safety on its own. And here's the thing, the same is true for us. Once we've wandered off the path that God gave us, once we've allowed for sin to infiltrate our lives, it severs our relationship with Him. See, sin affects us from the inside out, and it pollutes our souls so that we can no longer have an active relationship with the God who created us. So therefore, on our own, we can't find our way back home. We can't find our way back to God. We can't find our way back to safety. The only way for us to make it back is if our shepherd comes for us. And that's the whole message of the gospel. That's the whole reason why Jesus came, to bring us back, to restore us to the life that we wandered away from, to restore us to the God that we left behind. See, that's why Jesus even identifies himself as our shepherd in John chapter 10. Look at what he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. It's interesting, that word perish in Greek literally means lost. They'll never be lost. They'll never be lost again as long as they continue to follow me. See, Jesus came to bring us back, but we couldn't find our way back home. Jesus came to rescue us when we needed rescuing. Jesus came to clean up the mess that we had caused because we wandered away from God. Halloween was just a few weeks ago, and my kids got to go trick-or-treating, and they always enjoy doing that. And over time, Alice and I have become better parents when it comes to trick-or-treating, because we didn't know what to do at first. And so now this past year, we had like our sixth Halloween, so now we've kind of got the gist of what to do. And so now, when we get in from trick-or-treating, we take all the kids' candy, and we put it in this big plastic container, and we place it up on the top shelf of our pantry so our kids can't get to it. We'll give them a piece or two that night, but then we put the rest up, because if we let our kids just have at it they'll eat candy till they get sick and that's actually what happened a few years ago a couple years ago Alex was a little bit younger and we got in from trick-or-treating and he wanted candy and we said okay you can have one piece tonight because it's late and then you can have some more tomorrow but just one piece tonight and he whined and he cried and he wanted more and we said no that's it we cut him off and so then we gave him a bath put him on the bed and later on that night we heard some moaning some groaning some crying coming from his room and we went into his room and he'd gotten sick. I mean, he'd gotten sick all over the place. I mean, there was a mess everywhere on his pajamas, on the floor, everywhere. It was gross. That stuff just really weirds me out. But as, as a dad, I just go into dad mode, you know, I want to clean him up. But we knew immediately why he had gotten sick. It wasn't because he had caught a bug or virus or something like that. We looked around his room. There were all these empty ca- candy wrappers everywhere. He had somehow got the candy. We didn't put it up, and he had snuck back out or something and got a bunch of candy, and he had consumed that candy until it made him sick. And it was interesting. When I walked in the room and saw my son, he was standing there with his arms out wide, just covered in his mess. And he didn't say it, but he had this look in his eyes like, 
Daddy, I've made this mess, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to clean up this mess. You know, when I saw that image, I thought, that's the state that we're in. I don't know if you know this or not, because we've created a mess. We really have. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news. Listen to what your kids or grandkids are experiencing in school. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your coworkers. The world that we live in, it's an absolute mess. And the Bible doesn't hide the fact that we're in a mess. In fact, the Bible talks a whole lot about this mess we're in. It talks about how big the mess is. It talks about how the mess reaches all across the globe, how it affects every single one of us. It even talks about how we've contributed to the mess. But none of us, on our own, really know how to clean up this mess. And it's interesting, the Bible assigns a word to the mess we're in. And it's a word that you've heard before, but we don't like to use a lot. It's the word sin. In fact, this word makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable because we don't like to talk about the mess we're in. We don't like to talk about the sin that we've committed. But I think we need to understand this term from God's perspective because we need to understand what sin has done to our lives. See, yes, sin does have physical consequences. When you sin, it does lead to physical consequences, but it's more than that. We're not just physical creatures. We're also spiritual creatures. We were created both body and spirit, meaning we're not just a collection of nerve endings. God created us, you and me, with a soul. We were created in his image. And when we sin, sin infiltrates our soul and it pollutes us from the inside out. It severs our relationship with God so that we cannot have an active, healthy relationship with Him anymore. See, this is what happened. We were created for a purpose. We were created to live life with God. And when we walk with Him, we will live full, content lives, satisfied lives. But what we decided to do was to wander away. Remember that Hebrew word I looked at just a second ago? Shagag, to go astray, to wander away. It's a word for sin. See, what we did was we looked at God's perfect purpose for our lives and we let our eyes wander. And then we followed our eyes. And we thought to ourselves, maybe there's something else out there that will fulfill us, that will satisfy us better than having a relationship with the God who loves us and created us. And so we wandered away. We walked away from God. And here's the thing. We've all done it. None of us are excluded. Remember that verse we looked at just a second ago from Isaiah 53? Do you pay careful attention to what it said? We all, meaning all of us, every one of us, no one's excluded. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 3. Look at what he says in the book of Romans. For all, there's that word again, all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Translation, we've all walked away from God's plan. We've all aimed at the wrong target. And once we're in this mess called sin, we don't know how to get out of it. Because sin doesn't just make us guilty before God. It does. There has to be penalty paid for the sins that we've committed. But it also pollutes the life that God has given us and it severs our relationship with Him. 
And that sin that's in our lives continues to grow and to transform us and to change us to the point that it distorts our thinking. And if I could assign a word to what sin does to us, it would be the word confusion. Because what sin loves to do is distort reality. Sin loves to confuse us so that we no longer see life the way that God wants us to see it. We no longer see ourselves the way that God sees us. And we no longer see people the way that God sees people. Sin leads to confusion because sin distorts reality, the reality that God designed for us. And if you don't believe that that's the case, I believe that there is a common saying in our culture today that captures exactly what I'm talking about, and it's this, follow your feelings. You ever heard that before? Just follow your feelings. Do whatever feels good. But the Bible teaches us, God teaches us, that truth is always greater than our feelings. Let me illustrate it like this. If I were to hold this up right here, and if I were to say, this is a screwdriver. You guys would probably look at me and say, you're nuts. That's not a screwdriver, that's a hammer. And I would look back at you and say, well, no, I feel like it's a screwdriver. In my heart, I believe this is a screwdriver, so therefore it's a screwdriver. You would then look at me and you would say, Chad, we don't care if you feel like that's a screwdriver or not. We don't care if you personally believe in your heart that that's a screwdriver. That was designed to be a hammer. It's a hammer. And yet... This is what sin does to us. We forget God's created purpose for things and we just follow our feelings and we leave truth aside. And what the Bible warns us about is not to follow our feelings because our hearts can be easily deceived. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 17, it warns us of this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is exceedingly corrupt. In other words, if you follow your heart, just what you feel, you're going to be easily conned, easily deceived, easily led astray. And that's why the Bible teaches teaches us not to follow our feelings, but to follow our shepherd. Yet when we exchange following the shepherd for following our feelings, something worse happens. It leads to slavery, slavery to our confusion, slavery to sin. When you're a slave to sin, what happens is you don't believe that you can ever change. You feel trapped in your sin. Who you are today, you believe is who you will always be. How you feel about yourself today is who you will always be. You'll never get past your temptations. You'll never get past your struggles. You'll never get past how people see you. You are who you are, and nothing is ever going to change. Paul talks about this state of life in Romans chapter 6, and he says, at one time, we were slaves to sin. Peter warns about this, and listen to what he says in First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter 2.19. He says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. You see, when we let our sin define our identity, we become slaves to sin, and it starts to control our lives. It starts to dictate our lives. You may, have, you may not recognize this guy up on the screen. You might. He was in the news a few years ago. His name is Martin Usury, and Martin was caught in 2011 trying to sneak back in to a California state 
prison in Sacramento. Now, you heard me right. He was caught and arrested trying to sneak into a California prison, not break out. Because here's the thing. At one time, he was an inmate there. And he had been set free. He'd been out for about two and a half, three years. And he struggled to adjust to his freedom. So he wanted to get back in. And he decided to sneak back in in order to be an inmate again. Now, we may hear a story like that, and that's a true story. We may hear it and think, that guy's nuts. That's crazy. Why would anybody ever do that? And yet, I've seen this happen firsthand on a spiritual level numerous different times. When people start to believe the lies of Satan and they think, I will always be in the state I'm in. I will never come out of this. I will never change. Nothing's ever going to be any different. It's the same thing. And you can see it in their eyes. You can hear it in their voices when you talk to them. They believe they will always be held captive to their lust, to gossip, to their insecurities, to their greed, to their hate, to their selfishness, you name it. And when you become a slave to sin, the only result is death. Slavery to sin always leads to death. Maybe it's emotional death. Maybe it's physical death, but no matter what, it always leads to spiritual death. Slavery to sin always leads to death. And this is why talking about sin makes us feel uncomfortable. Because we've all been here before. A room like this goes quiet when we talk about sin because we've seen this evolution take place in our lives before. We've all been here before. And here's the thing, God could have left us here. God could have left us dead to sin. He could have said, they're the ones that wandered away. They're the ones that aimed at the wrong target. They're the ones who left me. They've caused all this. But just as a loving parent won't leave his son and all of his sickness after he's eaten too much candy? Or a shepherd won't leave his sheep to fend for itself out in the wilderness where it could be attacked by wolves or snakes or some other predator? Our father could not stand seeing us here. He could not stand seeing us confused. He could not stand seeing us enslaved to sin. He could not stand seeing us spiritually dead isolated from him for all eternity. And so our father decided to be the one who would restore our souls. Because he knew he was the only one that could do it. He was the only one who could bring us back, who could give us what we walked away from. And when you look at David's words here and he says, he restores my soul, I want you to pay careful attention to who does the restoring. It's not us, it's not me, it's not you. We can't find our way back. But God is the one who restores our soul. He's the one who brings our back. You see, our restoration is not achieved, but received. Because our restoration can only come through the shepherd. Our restoration can only come through Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring us back. In Romans 3, verse 23, we looked at this verse just a second ago, but I didn't read the very next verse. We looked at this first part where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you've probably read that before. A lot of people stop right there. But look at the very next verse. 
and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption. You might as well say through the restoration that came by Jesus Christ. See, we created the mess. We blew it. We wandered away. We aimed at the wrong target. But Jesus came to restore us and bring us back because He couldn't stand seeing us in our mess. And so Jesus came to provide us a path, a way of restoration back to God, back to the life that God originally created us to live. In order for that that to happen, Jesus had to pay the penalty of our sin. He had to stand in our place. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says this, The Bible says God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus on the cross stood in our place. He took on our punishment. He paid the penalty of our sin so that God could then see us as righteous. Jesus swapped places with us so that we could now have his status before God and he took on our sinful status. Jesus made us clean before the Father so that now we could have a relationship with him again. And so because of the cross, when God now looks at us who are in Christ Jesus, he no longer sees the sinful people that we are, but now he sees his son. He sees us as holy Righteous, we've been made clean. And now that he has restored our soul, as Psalm 23 says, now that he's made us righteous, now that we've been made clean from the mess that we cause, now God can guide us in passive righteousness for his name's sake. Now he can show us how to really live. He can show us how to live a fulfilled, satisfied, content life, the life that he originally intended us to live before we wandered away. And so as God takes us down these paths of righteousness, the path to really living, this is what happens. We move from confusion to clarity. We're now able to see what we couldn't see because of sin. We're we're now able to see our lives through God's eyes. We now see people through God's eyes. And we understand that we're living for something bigger than ourselves. And because of that, even though darkness surrounds us, we have hope that is inexplainable. And when you start to realize that God God does have a plan and he's not just restoring us, but he's restoring his entire creation and we get to be part of that plan, you live for that greater purpose. You realize there's more to life than just what you see around you. Because here's the thing, we as people, we are phase one of God's restoration plan, but phase two is coming. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth and everything is going to be restored and we're going to live in the paradise that God originally intended us to live in that we wandered away from. I have a friend that says that every time he puts his kids down to bed, he's reminded of God's restoration plan. He said, because when he lays his kids down to bed, his kids are surrounded by stuffed animals. He said, they have a ton of stuffed animals. You know what type of stuffed animals they have? They have stuffed bears and lions and tigers And he said, in real life, 
We would never lay down beside a tiger or a bear or a lion because we live in hostility to the creation, to the wild beasts that are out there. But the Bible says there's coming a day when the lion will lay down beside the lamb, when everything will be in perfect harmony again, when there will be no more hostility between us and the creation, where there will be no more storms, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more heartache, no more loss, when there will be no more hostility between us and our fellow man, no more hatred, no more jealousy, no more envy, no more prejudice, no more selfishness. And we will live as God intended us to live. And when you have that clarity, when you realize you are moving forward to something better, you also understand your place in this restoration process, that now, as we live in this in-between time, it's our job to show people what that future is gonna look like. And so as we love like Jesus in life, we give people a taste of heaven. We allow the joy of heaven to invade the sadness of people's lives through our daily activity. And we let them see that because we're able to now move not only from confusion to clarity, but we no longer live as slaves. Now we're able to live free. We're able to live in the freedom that God gives us. Because here's the thing, because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus, our sin no longer has the last word over our lives. We're no longer identified by our sin. We receive our identity through the blood of Jesus, which means we are, perfectly, we are perfectly clean before God and set free from the penalty of sin. And so we're not able to go out and show the world what it means to live free, that our identity is not in our past, our identity is not in our mistakes, our identity is not even in the current sins that we continue to struggle with, but our identity is in Jesus. And we want to let them know they don't have to be chained down to their sin anymore. They can have a new identity and Jesus, and then what ends up happening as people experience this freedom and as we live in this freedom, God is able to give us what he's always wanted to give us. And that's life. Yes. Life as it was intended to be lived. Life with our creator. Life with God. You see, Jesus died not just to give us life after death, but to give us life, real life, in the here and now. See, sometimes when I'll teach a class and we're talking about the subject of eternal life, I'll try to get people, you know, good teachers do that, and I'll try to get people and I'll say, when does eternal life start? When does it begin? And it never fails. Somebody will always say, when we die. If there's somebody super spiritual in the room, they'll say, when we die or when Jesus comes back. You know, they gotta throw that in there. And whenever I get one of those answers, I'll say, hey, when we die or when Jesus comes back, yeah, we get the fullness of eternal life. But eternal life doesn't start when we die or when Jesus comes back. Eternal life begins now. Just listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he's praying to his father before he goes to the cross. And look at what he says to his father. He says, now this is eternal life. Jesus is defining for us eternal life. This is straight from the mouth of Jesus. Look at what he says. That they, speaking of his followers, you and me, that they may know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, me, whom you have sent. How does Jesus define eternal life? He defines eternal life as living in relationship with the God who created us. 
Eternal life begins when we enter into this relationship with him. And that means our eternal life starts now. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 10, and this is a purpose statement for his life. He says, I have come that they, again, speaking of his followers, us, that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give us a brand new quality of life. A life where even though we're still surrounded by darkness, we can have lasting peace, contentment, and joy. See, Jesus didn't just die to get us out of hell. Jesus died so we could live, live now. Let me put it this way. Jesus didn't die just to get us out of hell into heaven. Jesus died to get into us, to live in us. And as we let our shepherd live in us and he guides us through life, he leads us down those paths of righteousness, the right paths. He transforms us and he changes us so we're different people. And we finally live the life that God always intended us to live. You may recognize this guy up on the screen with me. His name's Ben. You may have seen him around church. If you've seen him here recently, you know Ben is always full of joy and excitement. And Ben has been associated with our church for some time, but he'll tell you that for a while, he wasn't as serious as he needed to be about Jesus. And so he started coming back to church, and Ben has been through a whole lot during his life. He's a military vet. He's had some personal struggles, family issues, different things going on. He's been through some tough times. And when he started coming back to church and hearing the gospel again, it started to pierce his heart and he knew he was missing something and what he was missing was Jesus. And so Ben started to talk with some of the staff members here at our church and he decided to get baptized into Christ and you may remember on the Sunday that he was baptized into Christ just how excited he was. Matt Thomason, our executive minister, got to baptize him. And I think Matt struggled to get him out of the water because Ben's a big dude, but he still, he got him out. And it was an awesome day, a day of celebration. And if you know Ben now, you just know how full of joy he is. And he'll tell you. He said, my family has noticed a difference in me. He said, family members say, you know, there's something different about you. They've even told him, you don't even watch a ball game the way you used to watch a ball game. There's something different about you. He was telling me just the other day that he was running late for church and, you know, in times past, he would have said, hey, I'm late for church. I'm just going to skip. You know, I don't want to walk in late. But this time when he was late for church after he was baptized, he said, nope, Satan's not going to get me. If I just get 10 minutes of Jesus, better than nothing. And so he came anyway. And he's always there to give a word of encouragement to somebody else because Ben wants everyone else to experience the change that he's experienced. In fact, there was even one Sunday that I was preaching and I was talking about my family and about a struggle that we're having and he came forward and he gave a scripture verse. He said, Chad, read this to your family, this scripture, because it's helped me and I think it'll help your family as well. That's Ben. And I've seen this change firsthand. And I'll never forget on the day that he was baptized, We were behind stage with him. It was Matt and me and James Summers, our next-gen coordinator. And we were talking with Ben, and we were encouraging him. And I remember I told Ben that I loved him, and I was proud of him. And right before Ben got ready to go into the water, he looked at me and he said, Chad, 
this is the last time you're going to see the old me. And he went and he got baptized. You can clap for that. And I remember I bawled like a baby. And you know what it was the last time I saw the old Ben. And now Ben, he volunteers in our student ministry, helps lead a student small group. He's here week in and week out. He's encouraging people. He's inviting people to church. And he'll tell you, he's still got struggles in life. He's still tempted by sin. Life isn't easy. But Ben lives with hope. You know why? Because Ben now lives on this side of the cross. And I just want to ask you, what side of the cross are you living on today? Because God doesn't want you living over here anymore. Jesus came to be our shepherd so that we can live on this side of the cross. So which side of the cross are you choosing to live on today? Because if you're living on the wrong side, Jesus came to restore your soul so that you can live with God again. I want to invite you to live on the right side of the cross, and that can happen today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here in this place. Father, to study more in this Psalm 23 and learn what it means to live the life that you want us to live, that you created us to live. I thank you so much for being the one who restores our soul. Thank you for being willing to come and bring us back home. And I pray if there's anybody in the room today, Father, who who's living on the wrong side of the cross, that, Father, they would follow your son as shepherd and experience the life that you created them to live. So, Father, I just lift up everyone listening to this message today. May we all choose to live on the right side of the cross. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.